Hello and welcome to Paperback Readers. I'm Joe, that's Julie. Sorry we've been a little late. I've been a little tardy, but uh, you know what what can you say? Uh, we can say it really wasn't your fault. It was that I reserved the book for you at the library and yeah, then I didn't get to didn't pick get it up it. for a week because I was so busy. But So I can't read a book I don't have. That's but, true. You but then I got and, it and then I did read it. You could have gone and gotten it yourself. But they let me? Yes. Yeah. You have a card. (laughs) I don't know why we didn't, but anyway. It's okay. We got the book, and you read the book, and we loved the book, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, let's catch everybody up on what we have been reading. Let us. Okay, I'm going to go first, and let me tell you, I have been reading some amazing things over the past three weeks. Oh my gosh, just some of the most fantastic books. And the first one is The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Clune. You have heard about this book. Like a million times. Yeah, you loved this. I, I loved this book so much. And there are several people who had told me to read it, and uh, I didn't because I'm not a huge fantasy person. And honestly, I picked this book up because our daughter, Natalie, is a huge fantasy person, and so many people had said this was good. I wanted to see if maybe she would like it. And the answer is, I really think she will. But more immediately, I adored <laughs> it. It's just the characters are so good and it is it's really a feel good story in the in the end really I guess but it's more about the triumph of the human spirit and about this weird little island of misfits who learn to accept themselves and um show all of their goodness to this outsider who comes in prepared to judge and uh, oh, I, I cannot say enough good things about it. I don't want to say specific things that give away any of the magic of this story, but everybody needs to read this book. It's so good. I may yet. Um, yeah. You're part of everybody. I need you to read it too. <laughs> well, the problem is there's another one that's more immediate than that that's coming up, which is the size of the Doomsday Bible, but that's yeah. another story. Everybody, I think that Joe is just getting a little bit tired because... I keep reading these good books, and I keep lengthening his list, and he's, you haven't gotten to suggest a book for a while. I read good books, too, but they're not books that you care about, so there they sit. These are books, you care about the one we read this week. Yeah, I didn't say I yeah. didn't care okay. about your books. I All said right. you didn't care about mine, which I is different. I care about some, let's, we will not argue this now. <laughs> All right, the next book I read is The River We Remember by William Kent Kruger. This was a book of the month book, and it was really good. I've never read anything by this author before, Um, but I saw this recommended by a lot of people. One of them was our friend Maria on Instagram who posted this one, and I decided to give it a shot. Um, It is historical fiction set in a small town where uh, a member of their town, his body washes up on the shore of the river, and... All suspicion immediately turns to two specific people in the town. Um, It is a story that deals with racism, with our pasts, with war and what it does to us and how it changes us. And I just found it to be a really fascinating story. You helped me pick that one out from Book of the Month. Mm -hmm. So you remember it too. Then I read Unearthing Joy by Goldie Muhammad. This is a book that I have been reading slowly since July, I guess. Um, This is a curriculum book, and it is about how to structure your curriculum in a school in a way that also brings joy to students. Not that also brings joy to students, (laughs) but that centers joy, both for the teachers bringing this instruction and for the students who are receiving it and learning through it. So it's, um, 
I don't want to say it's like a new way of thinking about it because as somebody who's a teacher for a long, long time, I think I thought about joy often. Like I really wanted my kids to enjoy this. I really wanted them to find joy in what it was that we were doing. But the way that um, Goldie Muhammad talks about this is unique and is not a way that I'm hearing tons of educators talking about it today. So it was a fascinating book on that level. Then I read Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld. Um, I think I mentioned this book on the podcast when I talked about her book, Romantic Comedy, because when Rodham came out, I was determined not to read it. Rodham is a reimagining of Hillary Rodham Clinton's life if she had not married Bill Clinton and moved to Arkansas with him. What could it all have looked like? What would the country have looked like? And I just at the time thought it was just really disrespectful to write a book like that about somebody who was still Still alive, alive, public figure or whatever. I, I really did not see any way... Like, how do you take somebody's life and say, ooh, ooh, let me see what could have happened if you just wouldn't have picked the guy you picked? It just seemed really kind of intrusive and rude, you know? Between this and primary colors, the Clintons have to be the presidential couple with the most novels about them anyway. Well, yeah. And also, I wasn't a huge Curtis Sittenfeld fan. I had read Eligible, and my um, ardent devotion to Pride and Prejudice really kept me from liking that book very much. But when I read Romantic Comedy and was just really struck by what a good job she did with a genre that has been done and redone so many times, and she even had the nerve to name it Romantic Comedy, I I was just kind of knocked over by her talent. And I was like, well, I'm going to go back and get this book and read it. And I did. And let me tell you, this book was amazing. I did not feel like this book was insulting or rude or in any way really critical of Hillary or Bill, really, in the end of it. It was not written as a criticism on them as people or on their politics. It was literally just a reimagining because of all of the issues that came up in his presidency, of course, with Monica Lewinsky and, and um, uh, his extracurricular activities. But it, it really worked as a huge social commentary, especially as the book ended with the now newly reimagined 2016 presidential election and all of the issues about feminism and how we treat women and sexual assault and all those things. This book was fascinating and just brought up a lot of really interesting things that you and I were talking about as I read it, even mm-hmm. though you have not read this book yet either. Um, it's another one that you've now put on your list, and we may be talking about it more on this show later. But, y'all, whatever your politics, I just I thought that this book was a really interesting picture of just a woman and her goals for herself and her ethics and, and what she would stand for and what she wouldn't. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bill Clinton has always been this fascinating character because he represents that Faustian bargain is Bill worth Bill. That's always been the question. <laughs> now that said, Bill's baggage suddenly looks a lot more meek and mild than than uh, how it seemed at the time. But yeah, it's interesting the way that the Clintons still kind of capture the, the zeitgeist for uh, a lot of people. How that dynamic and that relationship is really interesting in a way that that most presidents and their wives isn't. Now, granted. We didn't have any other first ladies who were a hair's breadth from becoming president either. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah, like I say, just totally fascinating book. And it was it's a it's a book that's really fun to talk about. I think I don't feel like this should necessarily be a book that ignites a lot of political passions. So like if you read it 
with somebody who didn't agree with you politically, mm-hmm. and you're just talking about this book, the book on its own doesn't have to bring up political conflict. The book does not require you to talk about what you actually thought of the real Hillary or the real Bill. Sure, sure. Because they are, in this book, totally fictional characters. And, uh, man, y'all, it's just, somebody who's read it, get in touch with me. I need to talk to somebody about (laughs) this book. All right, and then I read Can't Help Falling by Courtney Walsh. I've read several books by her on here. Mm -hmm. I think I had one last time, too. She writes a lot of, like, seasonal books. And so this one was, as the title indicates, a fall book, and it was just kind of a really fun way to get into the season. I like the way that she thinks about characters also. And then the last one, another just knock me over book that we'll be talking more about on this podcast, so I'm just going to mention it. It's The Running Grave by Robert Galbraith. I think that we've talked about the last two books in this series, the fifth and sixth one, on this podcast, but this is the Cormoran Strike detective series written by Robert Galbraith, a.k.a. J.K. Rowling. And I love this book so much. I was talking to a friend of mine at work on Friday and just mentioning that I was reading this. And she said very casually, oh, yeah, I could never get into that series. And I oh, I just had to stop myself right there because I love these books so much. And, and as we've said before, I feel like they're really opening. Every time you open one of these books, you just step into a world. And the characters are so interesting, and they develop so well through the story. This book was 945 pages long. I will say that is a little bit long. Probably she could have cut it down a little bit and made it more manageable. However, I this is the seventh book in the series. I am thoroughly invested. I <laughs> wanted every word, and I wanted every page. And I loved it. I look forward to it. It's been interesting. Um, I wish the, the, the series that's on Max... I was quite as good. I watched a couple of those, and I liked their version of the first of the strike books, but with each successive one, it seemed to get a little farther afield. So I liked the first one, too, and I watched it with you. I thought they did a great job with Robin. I thought they did a great job with Strike. I did not necessarily picture Strike the same way as they did in the movie, but that's, you know, just how it is. Yeah. I will say, for those of you who may be wondering, this book, every one of these books deals with some overall theme in addition to the mystery that it's following along. And this one is the infiltration of a religious cult, which I have not read a ton of books about that. And found <laughs> I this might one, keep it that way. But yeah, yeah, found this one to be thoroughly creepy and very interesting. Okay, so those are my books in Europe. Okay, well, I... Uh... Worked through this one and just saw it as an impulse. But actually, that's not true. I had thought about buying it and then didn't buy it and then saw it at the library. So that's always a nice bonus. LeBron by Jeff Benedict, which is about, get this, LeBron. Um, LeBron James, the possibly greatest player of all time. Uh, Unlike most contemporary biographies, I thought that Benedict did a good job getting close enough to his subject to paint a pretty accurate portrait, but yet not fawning, uh, or worse yet, writing it from a point of view of just coming in to rip apart everything LeBron did or didn't do. Oh, I don't like uh, those kinds of things. And that's not to say he wasn't occasionally critical and that he wasn't mostly positive because he was occasionally critical and he was mostly positive. But That's fair. Um, yeah, it, it felt fair and it felt like a rounded portrait. I came away from the book... Uh, feeling like I understood a little bit more about where LeBron came from uh, as a man and the way that he thinks about the world. And um, I, I shut the book and I thought to myself, I don't know 
if LeBron is a better basketball player than Michael Jordan. I don't know if LeBron is a better basketball player than, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Kobe Bryant. or Everybody's got Bill Russell, whoever it is. But I finished it and I thought, but he might be a better man. Which is pretty Ooh, intriguing. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, again, I just came away thinking he doesn't, to use the John Calipari uh, phrase, poop ice cream. Uh, but Ew. he's a guy who felt oddly relatable. And the cycles of his life came together in a way that made me understand him and think, I think this is a dude who, for the most part, has his priorities pretty straight. I hope that's true. <laughs> I do, too. But anyway, enjoyed it. Good read. You read that one for a long time. It's about a 500-page book. It's not short. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a book with uh, with our son called Got Your Number by Mike Greenberg, and this was a cool concept, and we kind of picked through it a little bit at a time. Greenberg, who I think he still works for ESPN, he used to anyway, uh, went through the numbers from 1 to 100 and assigned every number to an athlete. They own that number. Now, for some people, it's the number they wore. You know, Michael Jordan wore jersey 23, so that's him. Uh, you know, Some of those are pretty obvious. Some of them he had to kind of reach for. Like I know he gave LeBron James the number 84, and you're like, what does it have to do with LeBron James? He was born in 1984, and that's the significance of that number for him. But some it would be this was how many Grand Slam tennis tournaments they won or you know things like that. So... Uh, he covered a lot of sports. He got into things like horse racing and tennis and golf uh, that necessarily maybe I didn't know as much about. But uh, we we would pause sometimes and say, oh, I can't believe he picked this guy instead of this guy. <laughs> and, and to his credit, sometimes he'd be like, this number was really crowded. We thought about this guy or this guy or her, but we ended up going with him. And, and so... You know, we would listen and kind of be like, I don't know about that. And then you'd listen to his little, like, three-minute essay and be like, well, yeah, maybe that was a pretty good choice. So. I am not sure I've ever heard of a book that is more exactly you because I'm not sure there is anything you love more in a book than having a list that you can debate. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was why he did it. So we enjoyed it. Got your number, Mike Greenberg. Um Similarly, since we went to Kansas City and saw the Royals play, I wanted to bone up a little bit on Kansas City Royals. So I went back to the series that my first book was in, 100 Things Royals Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, which is by a guy named Matt Folks. And I did learn some things, a few things I'd remembered, but it for, I had known but had forgotten, a few things uh, that I was excited to learn about. Um, and just some great odds and ends. Got some more uh, Kansas City barbecue recommendations, among other things. Mm, save that for next time. So, you know, a, a fun read, as they are in that series. Again, uh, public disclaimer, 100 Things Wildcats fans, yada yada, was my first book. So, And it is the best one, so you should for sure pick that up. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I, I enjoy seeing what other people did with it, and, and I thought Matt Folks did a pretty darn good job. Um, I am reading, or reading by meaning listening to, a series called Abraham Lincoln Life by Michael Burlingame. Now, I think when they did this in print, they did two massive volumes, but in audiobooks, it's 12 volumes. It is shorter uh, by necessity, but it's still, it's 12 volumes. I've done the first three, I'm most of the way through number four, which has got him into the early 1850s. Uh, the biggest revelation so far is how thoroughly difficult uh, his marriage was. I mean, Burlingame kind of says that summarily, and I told you, 
Lincoln's marriage is one of those things people don't really know a lot about. So I was a little bit leery of him just kind of coming in in a conclusory way, being like, oh, he was miserable in his marriage, blah, blah, blah. But then he kind of laid out the case for why he thought that. And listening to it, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I really struggle to draw any conclusion other than yours from what you've seen. So You've read enough Lincoln books, you should know. But in typical Lincoln fashion, he argues that, in fact, this turned into an advantage for Lincoln because his unhappy home life basically drove him further into the public sphere and made him step out of his comfort zone a little more and be involved in a few more things and ultimately, you know, set out on the public career that saw him become president. So take it for what it's worth. Uh, that was my list, with the exception of our joint book, which, as as you've noted, is now typical. You had read before. I had not. And it we was... talked about it a little bit last time, but we're going to go into a lot more detail now. It is Tom Lake by Ann Patchett. So, yeah, you, you gave the general overview. It's kind of an homage to our town because it's the story of a young actress who in this critical summer of her life is playing our town in a Summerstock theater in Nowheresville, Michigan. Uh, and the things that happen there, she has a romance with a young actor who is fated to become a great movie star. And we bounce between this story, which she's telling her three adult daughters, and the reality of her life during the pandemic in Nowheresville, Michigan, where she and her is husband... telling the story to her three adult daughters. Yeah, yeah. and... And, and the, it covers she, their actual real life there. Right. She runs a cherry farm there. So how do you get <laughs> from being this promising young actress with this gorgeous future matinee idol as your boyfriend to Nowheresville, Michigan in a cherry farm. Well, I mean, that's the story. And uh, I couldn't give it away if I wanted to. There were some really surprising twists in it yeah. that fit absolutely. <laughs> they were typical Ann Patchett. The writing is gorgeous. You feel from the beginning that you are in absolutely safe hands with this story. That she knows where she's going. She's going to take you on a really good ride. You're going to enjoy it, but you don't need to worry as you go through this story. Um, every single twist, everything I didn't see coming felt like the clicking of puzzle pieces into place, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and it seemed to echo not only in the quote-unquote normal and ordinary people in this story, but also in the rich and famous people in this story, the same human longings for... Um, a life of love, a life of joy, a life of beauty and simplicity that we all search for in different ways. Yeah, and, and that, I suppose, is what ultimately brings it back around in its circular fashion to our town. I mean, it is it is an homage. It's not a, a copy. It's not like... It's not uh, a retelling. I mean, we, we read a lot of books that, that operate on that frame, and this mm -hmm. is not one of those, but... But it covers some of the same emotional ground. And I was asked recently if you should read Our Town before you read this book. And my answer was, you don't have to. Like, you totally no, would get this book to without having it. seen it or read it. And we've done both. Um, but it enriches it, like your understanding of Our yeah, Town. Yeah, my answer would have been, you don't have to, but you should read Our Town independent of this book. <laughs> Uh, it, it is itself um, a quintessential American statement on small town life. And I saw it 
I think I was nine years old. It was the first time I'd ever seen my father cry. And uh, that, that stupefied me at the time. The older I get, um, the, the more I totally understand that. And uh, it, it's, it's funny because it's old-fashioned. It, it's sentimental in many ways, and yet... It's a classic for a reason. That ending. You know, yeah, yeah. I that mean, ending. It's it's a gut punch. Uh, it in possibly the best possible way. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I was student teaching, I believe. I was, one of the classes that I taught was a um, humanities class. And my supervising teacher and I taught the drama portion of it. And Our Town was one of the things that we looked at. And that was the first time that I had ever... Read it, seen it, everything, all at once there, and uh, it just, it absolutely knocked me over. Yeah, yeah. So, read them both, why not? Uh, but uh, Tom Lake is a triumph. Uh, I love Bel Canto. I would have told you before that was my favorite Ann Patchett novel, um, but I don't know. I'm not sure Tom Lake isn't, I hate to say better. I, I, I mean, it is... Blood on the Tracks better than Highway 61 Revisited? <laughs> is it better than Time Out of Mind? I don't know, but but in I the same know. way, it's a master at two different phases of a career doing two different things, and they're both phenomenal. Well, comparing those books is apples and oranges. So I can't tell you which one is better, but I can tell you Tom Lake is my favorite, and it's one of my favorite things that I've read this year. Um, and I've said before many times, too, I love Ann Patchett. I am more a fan of her nonfiction than her fiction, mm-hmm. and I've read everything, like all of her fiction. Yeah, you've so, read much more of her stuff than yeah, I have. I, I think it's really fun to see an author's development. I have, re- I loved Bel Canto, of course, but otherwise I really liked her later stuff better, Dutch House, Commonwealth, those kinds of things, um, than her earlier stuff. But this one just, to me, shines over everything else. I do find it interesting. Uh, this book may find part of its niche as a pandemic novel right? Uh, because it very much captures that like early to mid 2020 when everything shut down and you couldn't go anywhere and you couldn't do anything and everybody's life was kind of just on hold and, and you, yet it wasn't so awful in many yeah. ways. You and, know? and that's also when these three adult daughters want to know, they have the time to know and they yeah. want to know yeah. their mother better. What are the stories that you've never told? No. Is a unique time. Right. And manages to make it feel a little bit less claustrophobic than than I think it felt to me at the time. And and maybe it's more the way I should think about it in retrospect. I have heard a lot of people uh, kind of reject books that are set during the pandemic because they don't think they can go back and look at that time again. But I think this one handles it so beautifully. Yeah, it it was not... Arduous. It wasn't difficult. It it did kind of bring back those feelings, but not in a bad way. Yeah. So yeah. that that's interesting to see how that impacts it. But in any case, it, it's freaking great. I can say that. Oh, it's so good. If you have read Tom Lake or you plan to read it or any of those things, please let us know. We would love to hear from you. And in two weeks, and we really, <laughs> this next book's a big one, but we really do uh, plan to be back in two weeks and not postpone again. We'll be talking about The Running Grave by Robert Galbraith. You have a copy of that. I've just finished the copy that I I read, and you're about to start yours now that you're done with Tom Lake. That's right. Um, 
We cannot wait to talk to you about this book, seriously. So if you have anything to say about any of the books that we have read or talked about this week or any recommendations for us, you can get us at paperbackreaderspod at gmail.com, on Instagram at paperbackreaderspod, and on Twitter at pbackreaderspod. I think it's X now. I don't think we call it Twitter anymore. Oh, yeah, it is X. (laughs) Whatever it is. When is the last time I was on it? I don't know. When it was Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. In any case, whatever social media you're surfing, whatever else you're in, keep reading. <laughs>